Good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Who calls the shots in our life? Who lays claim to the authority in our life? You know, growing up um, in a wonderful home, super mom and dad, that was a question we never had to ask. Who runs things around here? Who's in charge of my life? <laughs> Who's got the authority? In fact, my dad and mom had a, a number of humorous ways to make sure we knew that. My dad would sometimes say, uh, in the, with a smirk on his face, he'd say, you know, son, it's just awesome that you live in a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> I, would, I was so happy. Sometimes we'd talk about my dad's dad. They were a ton alike. And uh, we'd get together, and they would jaw back and forth and laugh. And uh, my grandfather, we knew him as Pop, he'd say, Yeah, Roger, when you were a boy, I'd just say, Jump. And you'd say, How high? When can I come down? And then my dad would somehow look at me, and he'd say, That, that continues on. And kind of laugh, you know. Often around the dinner table, we'd be talking about uh, family vacations, or where we're going to go out to eat, or who knows, just decisions you make as a family, right? And my dad would say, well, you guys go ahead and vote, and then I'll decide. Now, you may get the impression my dad was an authoritarian in a bad way. Not at all. And I have a wonderful set of parents. But there was never a question about who had the exclusive claim to my life while I was in their home. It was my parents. It was never up for grabs. It was never a question. And similarly, we see some of the same concepts laid out for us in relation to God and Judah and Jerusalem. God had a had an exclusive claim upon the city of Jerusalem, upon the, the children there, the Jewish nation. He he owned them. And the question of his authority was really never up for grabs, even though sometimes the the Jewish nation maybe thought it was. But God was in control all along, and He was laying claim to that nation and those lives. And that's drawn out for us in the book of Isaiah. In fact, let me just kind of give you in a, in a sentence uh, what Isaiah lays out for us as we see the character of God. Isaiah really lays out for us and displays God's sole right to Jerusalem in and through this entire book, especially chapter 49. Now, when I say the word exclusive, I want to make sure that you understand what I mean. I don't mean exclusive in the sense that we're talking about God's nature. Understand this, okay? Because God does have an exclusive nature. It's intrinsically different. Remember that? In a word that's called holiness. Only God is holy. So from that angle, He's exclusive about Himself. But we're not talking about that from Isaiah 49. We're not talking about how He's exclusive in His sovereignty where He is independently in charge of things. doesn't need outside counsel. That's not really talking about either. We're talking about God's exclusive nature in the sense that He can lay claim to and has sole rights to things. In the book of Isaiah, He's speaking primarily about the but the nation of Judah and Israel and, uh, and Jerusalem, His created people there. And so I want you to understand that in the book of Isaiah, we see God displaying His sole right to Jerusalem in and through uh, not just the prophet Isaiah, but also different surroundings and different kings. And chapter 49 of Isaiah is a, is a snapshot of much of that conversation. You find that place in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 49. 
And we're going to see a good bit about God's exclusive nature today. And His right and ability to lay claim to, to not only this nation, but in an application to our life as well. Isaiah 49, your Bibles are open there. Let's begin to read and, and notice how God displays and lays out His, His exclusive right, His sole claim to the nation here. Follow along with me. Isaiah here is speaking. He says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Now, understand, that's about the, uh, that phrase, islands and nations, uh, distant nations, is mentioned 17 times in Isaiah. And it seems to be a call to the world to hear what God is doing through someone, an individual. Now, understand, Isaiah is going to begin to speak about his role as a prophet, but this, there is a dual meaning in this chapter, as there has been in much of Isaiah. In fact, you're going to notice that some of these phrases and words also will prophetically apply to Jesus Christ. In fact, if you have a New American Standard or possibly another translation, you're going to see that some of these words are actually capitalized. They're indicating that not only is he talking here about Isaiah, but also about the humanity part of Jesus Christ when He would come and be another deliverer. Let me, let me, let me read and you see what I'm saying. This is interesting. He says in, in the verse 1, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth He has made mention of my name. Now that's a pretty good indication of ownership, isn't it? If God knew you and called you by name before you were born, I mean, that's some, that's some exclusive claims, isn't it? Let's keep reading. You might want to circle all the, all the times the word birth or the word born is mentioned. He says, verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand He hid me. Now that speaks there again about the, the birth and that whole pre-existence type of, uh, you know, while He's in the womb, this, this hidden place, how God fashioned Him. He says he made me into a polished arrow. Notice the word sword and arrow. Two different types of impact. A sword is for close combat. When you're, when you're battling, when you have to have impact up close, and an arrow is what? Long distance. Isaiah is saying, you know, God has kind of fashioned me to do a couple of things. Have impact close up. I think he did have impact close up with kings that he was uh, in their palaces talking to. But also his writings have had long distance impact. The same thing for Jesus Christ. He says here that he said to me, You are my servant. This is what God said to me. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now that's an interesting phrase because he's not really speaking to the nation here, but I see the word Israel as an indication of perhaps the head of the nation. The the, the point person that God's saying, I'm going to use you to bring my people back. And that's borne out in the next few verses as well. And that would apply to Christ. As the day would dawn in the New Testament era, Christ would be the one to bring the nation back. So he says here, you are my servant. I'm going to display my splendor through you. But he said, or Isaiah was saying, I have labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. So Isaiah was saying here, you know what? I have preached this message, but who's listening? I've given prophecies about the future, what's going to happen. Not only judgment, but deliverance, but... Everyone seems to have a deaf ear. And is that not prophetic of Christ's ministry? For three years, He ministered in the name of His Father. And the Jews said in, in John 1.12, He came into His own and His own what? Received Him not. So you begin to see the dual prophetic meaning in this passage. 
But notice what the end of verse 4 says. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with my God. I love the way Isaiah here eliminates human approval as part of the equation. He says, yes, perhaps they're not listening, but you know who really settles the score? Who really passes or, or fails me, so to speak? It's God. My reward is with Him. And then, if, if you're here as a leader of anyone at all, take note of that verse. Man's stamp upon you matters, I want to say little, maybe not even that much. There's a time you want to live in peace. Sure, you want to try to do all you can to be a servant. But let's just be frank. It's God who ultimately decides our success or failure. Amen. He's the one we answer to. And Isaiah had an awesome way of understanding that. And I think that's prophetic of Christ as well. As he hung on the cross, murdered by his own people, yet he knew he'd been faithful to his father, hadn't he? Now the Lord says in verse 5, He's back again talking about the womb. He says, He who formed me in the womb. Here's a parenthetical phrase between 5 and 6, by the way. The Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. He says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has been my strength. And the word strength there is is the word not for outer power, but for, for inner resilience. He's saying this, You know what? When I see what God has formed in me and made me for, that brings the honor that I'm looking for. That gives me the inner resilience to keep on keeping on. Verse 6, he says, here's what God says. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? To restore the tribes of Jacob, bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Suddenly his purpose is expanded here, not just to the, the current nation, but those who would watch the nation. That you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, and the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has, circle the word, chosen. And from the beginning of verse 1 and 2 to the end of verse 7, you see a consistent theme that God, before Isaiah was even born, had formed him, had chosen him had made him for specific purposes and reasons. Are you following me? Now, prophetically, yes, the same for Jesus Christ. But don't, but don't misunderstand this to say that Christ was created by God. That's not good theology. Christ is God, and He's always been with God. So, but this is written from a human standpoint, in the sense of speaking of the humanity of Christ. And in that sense, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and then her womb carried the Son of God, from that sense, He was Formed. Does that make sense? As a man. But no, by, by no means this text indicates that Christ was created. He is with God forever, eternally, John 1.1. 1, 1. So you see this dual meaning here, and you see that, that God has laid claim, not just to the nation, but He's laid claim, exclusive claim to Isaiah. So listen, Isaiah, even before you were born, I had formed you and made you to bring Israel back to me. That's why I made you. I knew all along your purpose. Now, now when I think about that, that God is that intricately involved in my life, that He knows, even while I'm in the womb, what's ahead of, what's ahead of me and what's ahead for me. When I, when I realize that, it affects something. It affects my attitude. In fact, make a note of that. That 
that, that God can lay claim to me because of His creation. He has formed me. I am exclusively His just by the fact that He made me. And this really affects my attitude. In fact, notice that several times in these first seven verses that you find the word honor. You find the word strength. You talk, Isaiah talks about how the reward is, His reward is with God. In other words, Isaiah's whole perception of himself Changed because he knew that God was completely aware of his life, had formed him, had made him for specific reasons, and that was enough for Isaiah. It's the biblical way to proper self-esteem. Amen? Sometimes we find our self-esteem in acts of service or in the approval of others. Let me clarify how God says you should feel about yourself. He made you. He knows you. That's enough. Well, let me say that again too. He made you. He knows you. That's enough. But Todd, I, I want the person near me to pat me on the back. I need to... Okay, in some ways as humans we might, but the truth is a lot of us are probably uh, overly sensitive to the approval or disapproval of others. We should be more sensitive to, to God's estimation of us. Amen? He made us like we are. And sometimes in our efforts to change things about us we don't like, uh, they're probably, perhaps they're unchangeables. And they're sent by God for specific reasons, for, for things He wants us to do. Let us say, God, thank you for how you made me. I'm glad you're in charge of my life. He can lay exclusive claim to us because He made us. That alone right there ought to affect our attitude. We ought to feel honored that God has fashioned us in the womb for the specific reasons He's called us to. In fact, there's a couple of scriptures that bear this out, that really support this. Psalm 139. Don't turn there, but jot these down in your notes, would you? Psalm 139, uh, about verses 13 through 18. The psalmist talks about how God fashioned him in the womb, how He knew him even before he was born. You know, God knows you. He knew you before you ever graced the face of this earth. Before you ever came out crying. Before any of that ever happened, God knew you. And you wonder why He is asking for your life today. Wonder no more. God has an exclusive claim upon all of us because He made us. Jeremiah 1 talks about Jeremiah's role as a prophet. He even says very blatantly that you ordained me as a prophet before I was born. You see, God knows you. Not just because you suddenly exist, but God knew you even in the womb. God made you. And so He has an exclusive claim upon your life. Now listen very carefully. Knowing this, knowing that, that, that God lays claim to us by the fact of creation, it would make a lot of sense that Charles Darwin would try to attack creation right off the bat. Because if you can... Make God extinct at the beginning, then He holds no claim in the future. Are you with me? Let's get rid of God where it all started. And if there is no God and He didn't make any of us, then He has no right to us. Which is why the battle for creation is far more important than most of us realize. He did create the world and all that's in it in six days. He took the seventh day off, and He's made everything including you and including me. The biblical record is the true record. 
Listen very carefully. That being the case, He owns you by creation. So when the Lord calls you to certain acts or certain deeds or certain situations, can the creation say to the Creator, hey, you know what, I think I'll put that up for a vote, God. He might say what my dad said, well, you vote and then outside. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Are you with me? It, it, the gall that the creation has to say anything to the Creator, our response should be, Lord, I'm just honored that you would choose me. And you'd made me just like I am for specific reasons. And so when you claim me for certain things, when you have the sole because you have the sole right to call the shots, when you call them, I'm just going to respond. I'll ask how high when can I come down? God has an exclusive claim to us because we are created by him. He goes on in this chapter to talk about another aspect of his exclusive claim upon us. And it's mentioned in verses 8 through about 26. I'm not going to read all these verses. I want to just kind of share with you briefly what they discuss. And I want to show you a part of them. These last remaining 20 some odd verses or so, 18, 20 verses, they talk about the covenant that God made with his people. And they mention several times how God would not forget his promise to the nation of Israel. In fact, notice the beginning of verse 8 and 9 here. I'll just kind of read a few phrases for you. He talks about how he will answer them and he will help them. And then he makes an interesting phrase at the end of verse 8, Isaiah 49. He says, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. Do you see that? That's a very personal word there. Not only to Isaiah. Speaking of Isaiah's role in restoring and bringing people back to Jerusalem to God's covenant city, but I think also to Jesus Christ. Because in the New Testament, who is our covenant? It is not a thing, but it's a person, Jesus Christ. So prophetically, Isaiah is saying, listen, in the age to come when God's going to restore Israel eventually, your covenant will be a person. I think he's speaking here of Jesus as well. What did Jesus say to the disciples at the Last Supper? He held up the cup and he said, this is the blood of the what? This is my blood of the new covenant. In other words, Christ's own blood. Christ himself is the new covenant. And by that covenant, by that person, by his blood, we are saved. So you begin to see in these last few verses a, an emphasis on the covenant that God makes with his people. In fact, verse 9 says something very interesting. Look what it says here in verse 9. Let me give you a lesson in history that you'll appreciate. Isaiah 49.9 says that he would say to the captives, Come out and to those in darkness be free. He's speaking here uh, historically of what happened in about 541, 536, when Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a decree that all of those who were held captive in Babylon could go back to their homeland. Now remember, we've been talking about how God has an exclusive right and a sole claim on our life. Israel was, was living uh, in the nation of Judah. Excuse me, the Jews in, were in Jerusalem and Judah. And uh, Assyria was threatening and God relieved that threat. You recall that earlier before chapter 40. And then Babylon came in and took over. Remember the envoys that visited Hezekiah and kind of scoped out things? Well, they eventually did come and they took over the area. And for 40 years, they removed a lot of the Israelites, a lot of the Jews. And they held them captive for 40 years. 
But out of nowhere, God raised up a king named Cyrus, who was king of Persia. You'll read about him in Isaiah 45. Much of this section deals with Cyrus's invasion of Babylon and his overthrow of that nation. And when he overthrew Babylon, he said to the Jews, Listen, just go back to your homeland. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, listen, come on out of where you're captured. Go back to your homeland and be free. He mentions that in several other places in these, in these chapters of Isaiah 40 through about 52 or so. He's saying, listen guys, there's a covenant I've made with you. You will be back in your homeland, so now that you're free, I've used a pagan king named Cyrus to free you from another pagan king. Get on back to your homeland. You see how God uses anything and anyone to accomplish His soul purposes, then God can lay claim to whatever He wants, can't He? And He did in these chapters. He freed Israel and they went back to their homeland. That was in fulfillment of a covenant He made with Abraham. And one day, listen very carefully, don't disengage because of some of the the prophecy here. One day, God will fulfill His covenant uh, completely as He restores the Jewish nation to their homeland. He comes down and rules visibly for all people. We'll begin to see the fulfillment of the end of this chapter as well. Lots of things are in play here. And it shows me that God can not only use people He has formed in creation who are His, but He can use other folks who are formed in creation who perhaps are pagan and not His by belief to fulfill His own covenant. God has an exclusive claim to anyone and anything. So He uses Cyrus to bring the people back to the nation. And it shows me something. God can lay claim to me because of His covenant. Listen very carefully. Let me, let me show you just how strongly God uh, feels about a covenant He made with His people. I want you to notice a few verses here. Isaiah 49.14. This is the one that really I want to draw your attention to because it shows His commitment to His covenant. I'm sure that while they're in captivity for 40 years, or even while they're in this trek back to Jerusalem, the walls are torn down, many Jews were saying, man, what's really going on here? They said what verse 14 says. Look, look there in your Bibles. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Now your first reaction to that is, no way, that's an impossibility. What does the next phrase say though? Though she may forget. Now catch this church, listen very carefully. What seems like a human impossibility to us. Moms can't forget their babies, that's awful. And you attest to that. When you hear the news about a mom leaving a baby in a car, and then saying she forgot, or some mother in in terrible situations doing things to their kids, your your heart is grieved, isn't it? it's, It's almost incomprehensible. The, the 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 almost impossible human thought is for for God to do that is even more remote than that. That's what he's saying here. Because as as hard as it is to comprehend a mother doing that, it could happen. It's tragic. It's awful. But it could. He's saying, listen, guys, God forgetting His covenant is even more remote and impossible than that. He's making His commitment and love to His people in that covenant something far greater than even what a mom would have for her kids. That's some pretty strong love, isn't it? He says, look what He says, Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Do you hear those words, church? You know why I won't forget you? Because He's fashioned you in the womb. He's made you. He knows you. In fact, when is that like this? He knew you before your mom knew you. 
I mean, she knew you were there in this little round belly, right? But she didn't know what you looked like. I know we've got 3D ultrasounds, and you can get a pretty good image, but until you pop out, your mom and dad don't know you. And then, the truth is, listen, they don't really know you until about two. And then they really see the rule you have the time. Right? Are you with me? But guess what? God says, I knew you even before you were ever uh, visible. Man. And He says, I will not forget you. Verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Speaking there of, of, a, of a cutting action. Not of a tattoo type of cutting in a weird way, but more of an architectural rendering. In other words, he says the next phrase, your walls are ever before me. Speaking there of the walls of the New Jerusalem, I believe. In other words, God has an imprint in His hands of what Zion, which is what He's talking about here, verse 14. In other words, He knows what His nation will look like and be like one day. He's got an architectural rendering imprinted on the palms of His hands. And by the way, that is the focus of Revelation when the new Jerusalem comes down. Are you with me? I mean, God's not forgotten about His people. He's made a covenant with them that one day I'll restore you completely. And though they may think, man, God's forgotten us. He's saying, no, I know exactly what it'll look like one day. I've got an architectural imprint on the palms of my hands. I have not forgotten you. When you see these verses... It helps us endure the bad times because we understand that though currently it seems like God has forgotten, He hasn't. He knows us, He has formed us, and He has plans for us. And God, speaking here of the Jewish nation, will one day rendezvous with all the nations. And He'll restore His people, and everyone around will see that God has exclusive rights to His people. And when they watch that, you know what they'll do? They'll watch that and they'll think, wow, who is this, the one and only God? And I believe verses about 22 begin to happen. Look with me, Isaiah 49, 22. It says, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I'll lift up my banner to the peoples. Do you see the times now He's mentioning other nations? When God begins to lay exclusive claim to His people and bring them back, other nations will begin to see. Look at the last part of verse 26. He says, All mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This reminds me a lot of what Rick was talking about during Missions Month. That there is an ultimate plan that God has in place. It's worship from all the nations, right? And He's using people as He sees fit. He's using kingdoms and nations to this goal of one day of bringing all uh, people, all believers from every language, tribe, and kindred, and tongue together to give Him worship. This is all part of that plan. And as we're part of that, He has exclusive claim and sole right to tell us how we're part of that. Amen? Because He made us, He has exclusive rights to us by creation and also by covenant. Watch this, church, church, very carefully. His exclusive claim to us by covenant really affects my actions. In other words, when I see how God acts towards me, my heart is propelled to respond in like manner. At least it should be. In fact, John said it like this. We love Him, finish it with me, because He first loved 
It's the same principle. When I see how God reacts to me, when I see He doesn't forget that He will keep His covenant, that He's the God with incredible, perfect memory, it makes me want to respond that way to God. And perhaps do what Kathy said, Lord, I'm, I'm coming back home. You did not forget me, and I'm through living like I'm forgetting you. In fact, let me show you some verses that Isaiah uses to indicate our actions. These are stunning verses. Okay, Look over at the end of this section, Isaiah 52. As you know, there were chapter divisions in these Old Testament prophecies, so we're left to look at the Hebrew text originally. And the actual end of this passage from, from about 40 or so to about the end of 52 is one section. And look how he ends this section. Verse 11 of Isaiah 52. He says, Depart, depart, go out from there. I think he's speaking here of Babylon. He says, Listen, I, I'm going to free you through a pagan king. You can get out of this place. And he says, Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure. You who carry the vessels of the Lord, you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. He says, Listen, when you leave this place, leave behind all of its practices and be to me a holy people. Guess where this same passage is repeated? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, listen, I want you to come out from among them and be separate. Here's what God's saying. Because I've kept my covenant, I want you then to leave behind the old ways and be to me a holy people. Do you see the action um, uh, sequence here? God keeps His word to us and guess what? He wants us to keep our word to Him. He's made me by creation, and so He has exclusive right to me. He has exclusive right to me by His covenant. And my response now should be, Lord, whatever You say, I'm in. Because He has sole rights to our life. Amen? And Isaiah 49 is just a picture, a a synopsis of, of this same thought laid out in several chapters. In fact, let me kind of word it for you in one sentence. You might want to jot this down a little longer today than we normally give. But nonetheless, a very true statement about this chapter and about God's exclusive nature. So jot this down. Let's try to remember this this week because it really sums up uh, God's intentions here. Here's what it says. God has the sole right to lay claim to who I am. That's through creation part, right? And what I do. That's the covenant part. And he can use whatever and whomever he wants to bring me back to his original intent. Which is what? Worship and glory from all the nations. What was God using? What is God using to bring you back to him? For Kathy, he used a little baby to get her back to church. Isn't that amazing? And back to himself. For a man named Balaam in the Old Testament, he's a donkey. Did you know that? Yeah, God made a donkey talk. There was this prophet writing to deliver the news. And he came to a place and it was he was not really obeying God fully. He was uh, arguing and negotiating with some evil empires. And God was trying to get Balaam's attention. And Balaam would listen to God. Which, that's odd, isn't it? I mean, no one here would ever not listen to God, of course. But in that culture, of course, there were folks who wouldn't listen to God. I just can't even imagine that, you know. So this prophet is, is riding along, listening to, listening to his own uh, self and other nations. And God plants an angel right in front of the donkey. An angel that perhaps 
apparently was invisible to everyone except whom? The donkey. So the donkey stops, and Balaam's like, come on, Silver, get up, come on, you know, go, go. He's beating this donkey. The donkey's not going. And so the donkey finally turns around and says, listen, can't you see there's an angel? It's kind of a paraphrase there. But he says to the rider, listen, you may think I'm dumb, but good night. Can't you see what's right in front of us? God made a donkey talk to get a prophet's attention. God used a fish to get a prophet's attention. Remember Jonah? Three days he spent in the belly of of this great big fish. Have you ever thought about what that must have been like? That's a pretty slimy situation. But in three days, the fish got tired of of, uh, the human dish and he spit him up. And on the shore, I would love to see what Jonah looked like. On the shore of this... um, city of Nineveh perhaps which is where he was headed he realizes man i got to listen to God now he realized that in the belly of the well because you read his prayer in the book of Jonah but isn't it amazing God will and does use anything to get your attention because he has exclusive claim to your life he has sole right to call the shots and for the creation to say to the Creator, you know what, I'll get back to you about that. Don't be surprised when God uses any means possible and anything and anyone to say, excuse me, maybe you didn't hear my exclusive claim. He used a donkey. He used a fish. In this case, he used a pagan king named Cyrus to overthrow a pagan nation named Babylon so he could free his covenant people. Israel, God will use anything and anyone to make sure we are back with Him. Amen. Is God trying to get your attention this morning? Perhaps you're saying, so that's what's going on with my boss. God's using my boss. Or that's what's up with the dryer. Or that's what's up with the budget. You know, It could be a number of things. But here's what I'm saying, guys. God has an exclusive nature about Him towards His created things. He has a sole right to you and me. He owns me. Not just once, but twice. Amen? He owns me through creation. He owns me through salvation. My only response should be, Lord, when, where, I'm yours. That's what Isaiah said at the very beginning of the book. Was it? Remember Isaiah? He said, Lord, here am I. Send me. Sounds like Isaiah knew who called the shots. It was God Almighty, the one with the exclusive nature by creation and by covenant. I trust you'll respond today as well to the claims of God upon your life. Let's pray.